0: This is The Candidates, a limited podcast series by Only Sky Media, highlighting non-religious candidates in the 2022 midterm elections. I'm your host, Sarah Levin. In this episode, I'm speaking with Meg Rosenfeld, who's running for state assembly in Pennsylvania to represent District 139. We cover a lot in this episode healthcare deserts in rural Pennsylvania, abortion, and what it really means to be a public servant working for the people, and a lot more. Take a listen. We are here with Meg Rosenfeld, who is running for Pennsylvania General Assembly District 139. Welcome.
1: Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: Thanks for being here. I'm really excited to talk to you about your race and um, your platform. And But first, I wanted to talk to you about running, and this is your first time running, And as an open humanist. What has that been like? Does it come up? Um, is it something that you find really impacts um, the ideas you're bringing to the campaign trail?
1: I don't think it's impacted my campaign in so much as my relating to voters. I grew up as a Unitarian Universalist, so the majority of my childhood and teenage years was studying world religions and different ideologies and really trying to figure out what my belief system was. And I think over the years, I decided that I didn't need answers to unanswerable questions and that the best way to live my life would be to create the world that I want to live in. And that meant being compassionate towards other people and helping other people. And so without the idea of there being some sort of external reward or final reward after I die, um, my philosophy has always been try to make this the best thing in your experience. Whether there is something after we die or not is sort of irrelevant to how um, we should be living our lives right now. Uh, Moving out here to a rural area of Pennsylvania 12 years ago, um, I had no idea that there was not going to be a hospital in our county um, and that we weren't going to have access to even and urgent care. Um, Two years into moving here, my eldest son was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer, and we didn't know if he had days or a year or so to live. It turned out that he had 30 days. And our family found out firsthand um, what it was like not to have a local hospital for cancer care. And he spent the last 30 days of his life in a hospital in New Jersey, away from family and friends, and I slept sometimes in my car and sometimes in the hospital bed with him. Um, And it just wasn't the end-of-life care that we would have hoped for him. That was a really difficult experience for us, but what really motivated me to run was knowing that it's been 10 years since that happened, and absolutely nothing has changed. And I believe the reason why we are still living in a healthcare desert here is the fact that rural communities um, don't have the population density and the wealth that always grabs the attention of uh, lobbyists and government officials. And to me, that's unacceptable. Um, Healthcare is a human right, and the people that live here deserve to have access to world-class health care close to home, and they deserve to have their basic needs met. And I don't understand why anyone would be squirreling away money for a rainy day fund when they know that their constituents are suffering. And I've only seen my platform reinforced through the conversations I've had with, with the community members here. I've done a lot of time going door to door and making sure that I am getting a very clear and deep understanding of what the local issues are. Because that's what a state representative should be doing. They shouldn't be telling people what to care about. People should be telling their state representative what to care about, and that has been my main focus. Not only has our government completely forgotten about the basic needs of the people here, but most of my time has been spent getting to know these small nonprofit organizations that are trying to do the work that our government should have been doing in the first place. Mm. We have a food scarcity issue here that is just, it's so heartbreaking. I i have been volunteering at a local food pantry and the number of families and individuals that they serve just continues to rise. I went over to a local hospital in the Wall Paul Pack area um, to donate food that our campaign, uh, one of our campaign events had had raised and this young woman in the middle of her school day came up to the teacher we were walking with and pulled her aside and asked her if she could take home one of the bags of groceries from the school food pantry at the end of the day. And that that was a really difficult thing to think about, um, one of our young people in the middle of their school day being worried about whether or not they were going to have a meal for dinner. That should be the last thing that any of our students are thinking about in the middle of their school day. And I would love to see our government officials stop prioritizing um, the lobbyists in the big oil industry or the natural gas industry and start focusing a little bit more on their constituents and and their quality of life because when they're focused on on giving, big corporations kickbacks and and not on the 59-year-old down the street who is legally blind and isn't eligible for senior services yet due to his age and can't facilitate any of his own doctor's appointments, we have a big problem here. We have a human problem. And, and to me, that's a government problem. If we do not create a universal healthcare system We will always be in the situation where the wealthy receive health care and the poorest of us don't.
0: So can you speak a little bit more to just maybe how we need to change policy and just change our thinking around how we
1: do social services? Well... I can tell you that our social services here are really struggling, um, especially with even having enough people to hire. We have a high turnover rate for social workers. It's difficult to find social workers to hire in this area. The caseload that our um, children and youth uh, social workers have is astronomical, and they can't adequately address all of the needs of all of their clients at any given time because it's not humanly possible um, in general all of the all of the occupations here that require a certain level of, of compassion um, we're having a hard time finding enough people for those jobs we aren't incentivizing people to, Go to school and be able to afford um, their student loans in order to get these jobs. We have we have jobs um, that aren't paying well enough to even survive without the student loan um, situation. There is a mom that I know. Um, her child has has very significant special needs. She is wheelchair bound. Um, she needs home care nursing around the clock, and This mother is worried about when her child ages out of the system at 21 um, that there's a lottery. There's only one space available for care for for an adult who is over 21 who is wheelchair-bound in this area. And that spot is currently filled. So I know that she's not the only one that's dealing with this, but we can't we can't rely on nonprofits popping up or closing their doors or another one opening because while all of this is happening, people are slipping through the cracks and there are no services for people. Um, in terms of discrimination, you know, I if someone needs help, then we should be helping them as a society. It, it's I I've never understood how a religion who is that is. Meant to be compassion based, could ever turn someone in need away. Um, to me, that is the opposite of. I would say ninety nine percent of the religious teachings that I've read. So I don't under I don't understand that mentality personally. But just like with nonprofits and healthcare, we're also seeing religious ideology seeping into the public school system, and there is a big push right now on the Republican side for school choice. And school choice, at first glance, I thought, wow, wouldn't that be nice if kids had more options of different schools that they could attend? And then I looked into it further and realized, oh no, that's not what this is. In our area, there really aren't private schools. There may be like one, one or two religious private schools that are around. But the voucher system doesn't pay fully for a private education. The, the voucher system is a discount. And it's paid for taxpayer dollars. So really, the only folks that this voucher system would be helping would be the wealthy that can already afford private school tuition, because certainly no one that's sending their children um, from a middle class or low income household is going to be able to afford to make up the difference for private school tuition. Um, And then you're you're pouring tax dollars into a religious um, school, and to me, that's a complete violation of separation of church and state taxpayer dollars should be for public education period and i do know from my own experience um going to school board meetings and running for school board in the last election cycle as a write-in that there are local private schools that have been lobbying at the school board meetings to sow the seeds of distrust in public education. They have been attacking public education and, and the curriculum that the public schools have, and even trying to get them to ban books at our schools um, in order to further their own agenda, which is getting public school funding for their private schools so that they can profit off of it. And I think it's mm-hmm. disgraceful. So I want to move on to talking about
0: addiction and recovery, which is it's uh, the, the opioid crisis is nationwide. Pennsylvania is definitely, to my understanding, up there in terms of um, as a state that's heavily impacted. I know that at least in Philly, I uh, remember seeing that there was a lot of controversy around uh, a needle exchange um, center. Um, and you know, that's very common whenever that's proposed, it is evidence-based, it is a great harm reduction approach, but you get this, uh, kind of kind of knee-jerk response from folks that, oh, we're, you know, how could we possibly, you know, how could it be okay to enable this behavior, right? And then, of course, um, even if you can get over that, nobody wants it in their backyard, right? They don't, they don't want to live near that center, right? So um, I'm, I'm wondering if you could just comment on that and, and what you think uh, the solution might be.
1: I guess I would respond with a question, and that is, are people disposable? To me, if someone is using or having any other sort of issue with addiction, does that mean that they're no longer worthy of compassion? Are they a disposable person that we need to push out of society and reject? And my answer is no. (laughs) Um, I don't think that anyone wants to grow up to be an addict. I don't think any addict is happy remaining an addict, um, and it doesn't mean that their life is not worth protecting. If, an, if a needle exchange would help save someone from contracting HIV-AIDS or hepatitis, why, why wouldn't we want to prevent further harm to any individual? There's been so many studies with animals that, not with humans, but with animals where they study addiction behavior and they'll put they'll put an animal in a cage by itself and they'll give it the option of eating or drinking a drug. And after a while of isolation, the animal that's isolated will go and and continue to take the drug and essentially be depressed because of lack of community. And the animal that is put with other animals has shown no interest in taking that drug. So I think that a lot of a lot of how we address people should be just that basic lesson that we can take away from observing animals and scientific studies. And that's, we can't combat addiction or depression or any other issue that is becoming an obstacle to the human condition by isolating because it only makes the issue worse. I I haven't talked to anyone that's overcome a problem who has said, I overcame this problem by myself. Right. Right. And so I would just call on, on people to be that community for other people because I know that sometimes addiction or depression can feel uncomfortable for for anyone who hasn't experienced those issues. And it it's almost scary. And I think the fear and the stigma surrounding mental health issues or addiction issues is really the thing that we meet, need to start addressing as a society. Because it doesn't make you less of a human because you have mental health issues. It doesn't make you less worthy of love or community. In fact, it just means you need it more.
0: Is there an issue that you feel like is really, really important, but just doesn't get enough attention, or maybe it's just not, not a sexy issue, but just has a huge impact
1: that we haven't talked about yet? The arts. Uh, lack of funding for the arts in school. Um, I'm also a, a ballet teacher at a local school. My husband is a an oil painter, a fine artist. Um, and our public school that we send our children to is excellent, but they their main focus is on college prep or sports. It, there's really not enough funding for the arts. So, per, for me personally, I would love to see um, more arts and sciences programs in our in our schools. Um aside from that, like we haven't discussed the elephant in the room in this election cycle which is abortion. Um and that was actually the one issue that I hoped would never come up um during my <laughs> during this race, but why? <laughs> because it's such an emotional issue um mm-hmm. and it brings up a lot of a lot of bad feelings for a lot of people, myself included. Um And it was something that I really hoped we wouldn't have to have to tackle because it is it can be so divisive or it can be just heart wrenching to talk about. And unfortunately, with the overturning of Roe, um, it's falling on the state legislature and they've already introduced legislation here to ban abortion in the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, Mastriano has said that if he's elected governor, he's going to do everything Mm. that he can to criminalize it, with no exceptions. Wow. And as someone who, who grew up um, with a very, a very liberal mother who was part of, of the women's rights movement, um, my grandmother is a hundred and three years old, and she's seen wow. she's seen when women really had no rights um, and not able to have a bank account. Um, to this huge, drastic transformation in her lifetime. And the moment that I had to talk to my grandmother about the fact that women no longer were guaranteed abortion as a constitutional right, it was a horrible day.
0: How did she react to that? I can't imagine how horrible that must have felt like after advocating
1: for so long for that to be taken for granted. It was, it was really difficult. Um, there weren't a lot of words that were spoken um, between us. It was mostly just her reaction was more of a physical reaction to the news. Um, I could see in her eyes that she was really, really devastated by it and and felt like she might be leaving the world, seeing it, regress in a way that she never thought was possible. I, I had my first child when I was 20 years old. Um, and it wasn't an easy decision for me to make. Um, I was 19 when I got pregnant. I was away at college And my choices were to terminate the pregnancy and finish receiving the college education that my parents were willing to pay for or stop my college education, get a job and support my baby and marry the man that got me pregnant and support him. And that was, that was the choice I made, um, and it was a really difficult path for me. We lived in poverty for many years. Uh, I recall when my, my son or our son was little, probably around three years old, we were living in an apartment, a basement apartment in Pennsylvania. And it had this carpeting on the floor that would become saturated with water every time it rained. And sometimes we'd get like an inch or two of water. Um, From the ground up and the apartment complex wouldn't do anything about it. We had black mold. They didn't do anything about it. The woman across the hall from us set her apartment on fire in the middle of the night so that she could collect renter's insurance. Um, there were people that were, you know, stealing wheels off of cars in the middle of the night in the parking lot. It was just a bad living situation and. More times than not, I was doing laundry in my bathtub because I couldn't afford the coin-operated laundry. And there were days when I skipped a meal so that our child could eat. And it wasn't it wasn't easy. And to top that off, my husband was very abusive. And we had a pretty miserable marriage for six years. And three children later, um, I was unable to leave him because the job that I had didn't subsidize my childcare costs. Um, I was still paying part of the insurance premium out of my paycheck and I didn't have the financial ability to leave my husband. And it wasn't until I got a job teaching at another school where they paid for my health insurance, they subsidized my childcare and they paid me a living wage that I was finally able to get out of a situation that was really bad for me and for my children. And that, personally, is why being pro-choice is so important to me. While I made the decision to have my babies, I wouldn't wish what I went through on anyone. I wouldn't force them into a situation where they no longer had agency over their own lives and it's it's not just about healthcare. it really is about freedom bodily autonomy and choosing your own future that experience that i had was so it, it still affects me to this day and i don't want that for my daughter if she finds herself in a situation i don't want anyone to tell her what her future is going to be if she's going to make a decision to have a hard life then that should be her decision to make not mine not anyone else in the state legislature and i really firmly believe that when it comes to basic freedoms every single person has the right to decide their own destiny and the government should be nowhere near that. <laughs> Everyone should be free to make their choices, whether it makes their life better or worse. That's on them. There there are so many scenarios in which pregnancy termination is the compassionate or the medically responsible choice. Um, having a woman's life be counted as disposable. Again, you know... It's not the compassionate way to treat people in a society, to tell them that their life is disposable um, and that they no longer have any agency over their own health. It's wrong, (laughs) and it's not something that we should ever be contemplating as a society. Um, Mastriano came to our area with his wife and spoke about um, his platform, and when it came time to talk about women's rights, he handed the microphone to his wife and he said, I'm not going to talk about women's rights. I'm going to let my wife do that. And she took the microphone and she started listing the things that she believed women have the right to. And I'm paraphrasing when I say that she said women have the right to have affordable groceries. Women have the right to access baby formula and women have the right to tell public schools what to be teaching their children. And that was pretty much the list. Wow. I I was floored when I listened to this thinking, wow, this sounds like a 1940s reboot right here. (laughs) Um, I'm sorry, but maybe she missed the past <laughs> the past, past few decades of how women now are, you know, equal citizens. And in Pennsylvania, we have an equal rights amendment act for women. Mm-hmm. Women are equal citizens to men in the state of Pennsylvania. And perhaps, perhaps she'd like to go after that too. So, if you don't mind me asking one thing we're trying to do here is really want
0: people listening to realize that in addition to being a candidate meg Rosenfeld is a person just like you people just like you can run for office so um i i just wanted to ask you about you know you when you're you know outside of being a, a candidate outside of your your job and and being a parent Tell us about you. I know you're a dance teacher. would love to hear more about about that. You know, what do you what do you do in your spare time? Like, what are some fun hobbies that you have?
1: I've always been a not follow the recipe kind of person, which you may have guessed since I decided <laughs> to stop going to school and have a baby at twenty. Um, <laughs> i I truly believe that trying to plan what your future is going to look like, is the fastest road to disappointment. Um, I've always tried to stay open to new experiences and new people and new, new ways in which I can understand the world and learn. And it's really led me into so many interesting places throughout my growing up from being 19 until now that I'm, I'm 41. And I feel like I'm just getting started still. I had a wonderful career teaching in a Montessori school for a long time and, and then being a school administrator. And I loved that, but then I felt like I had gotten to the end of the road with that journey and I wanted to explore more things. And then I went back to school to become a paralegal when I was, gee, I was probably 37 when I decided I was going to finally earn a degree. And, That's <laughs> and awesome. I graduated top of my class. Um, Hell yeah! yeah. <laughs> and it was, it was exciting for me because I was like, Oh, you know, I, I can do new things, even though I missed out on that first window when you're supposed to do all those things. So I've, I've never, I've never ascribed to a linear way of looking at life. It's always, you know, if there's something that you're interested in, try it. Why not? You know, you only live once and your age shouldn't be the deciding factor of what you're allowed to experience in life. The Candidates is a production of Only Sky Media, exploring the whole human experience from a secular perspective. Visit us online at onlysky.media.